0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. In this podcast, we explore some of the little known legends, stories, places, and rumors about the great Buckeye State. We're your hosts, Mike and Dan. So hide the keys, lock the doors, and turn down the lights. The next episode is about to begin. And welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. This is part two of our episode about legendary Cleveland, Ohio aviator Blanche Noyes. Make sure you pay attention all the way to the end for a special twist. She really wanted to expand her flying skills, so Dewey began to teach her instrument flying, as very few women had had this instruction. She and Dewey excitedly told friends of their plans to make a flight around the world and began to seek sponsorship, but it was not to be. Shortly after Blanche won another race, the Leeds Trophy, in 1934, Dewey Noyes was killed in a crash in December of 1935, when he was flying a flight from Fort Worth to Cleveland, and America would lose one of its most gifted aviators at the time.
1: How did he crash?
0: He crashed. Um, he was flying the very first production model of a Beechcraft stagger wing. And a Beechcraft stagger wing is kind of a cool looking airplane. If you think about most biplanes, if you think that the lead wing is usually more forward or parallel with the bottom wing, but in this case, it's not. The bottom wing is much further. Mm further forward it's a distinctive looking airplane it's cool and this was the very first one ever the very first one the first production model of this airplane so he was flying in horrible weather it was snowing it was windy and he crashed into the side of the mountain uh he was told uh he was told not to fly but he did it anyway yeah that's
1: usually a lot of times when that's
0: Absolutely. There, I think there was a little bit of arrogance involved there and I can do this, don't worry. And they tried to get him not to fly, but he did. And unfortunately, there was a couple other executives on board. And kind of as a side note, they would go back years later, I think in the 1990s, they would recover the airplane and the parts from the airplane, they rebuilt it and it still exists today in a museum down in Tennessee. So they went and got that wow. exact plane that had crashed into this mountain. But Back to the story a little bit here.
1: I bet Blanche was crushed by, by his death.
0: She was absolutely devastated. She was heartbroken, and she really didn't know what to do next. Dewey and aviation were linked together for her, and it was a huge part of her life. Just from the loss of Dewey had so devastated her, she didn't know what to do. She also learned about a race, and this was a Bendix cross-country race, and this was going to be open up to women for the very first time in the 1936 National Air Races. So Amelia Earhart would ask Blanche to be her co-pilot for this race, and Blanche would refuse. She really had no intentions of flying in this Bendix race, and she had just lost her husband only months earlier. But Blanche would also turn down her friend Louise Staden's request to be a co-pilot, but Louise Staden would be very persistent and kind of followed her around until eventually Blanche agreed to fly.
1: What, Louise was a, a good friend of hers, or did you just...
0: I think not really necessarily a good friend, but they were on friendly terms, mm-hmm. and Louise Thaden was enough of a friend to recognize that Blanche Noyes needed a hand at this time in her life, and so she more or less insisted, hey, be my co-pilot, let's show these men a thing or two, come on, come and fly with me. So Louise Thaden and Blanche Noyes would take off, and Blanche would later admit that this race probably saved her life. So now... Here she goes. Here we go. We're going we're gonna to do this race. And she would turn to her old friend, Walter Beach. Now, Louise Thaden had a relationship with Walter Beach, and she had actually worked for him. So they're able to get another airplane. So the women needed an airplane to fly in this race, and they called upon Louise's old boss, Walter Beach. And Walter Beach offered them the use of a Beechcraft Steger Wing, the same model that Dewey crashed in. So... Kind of a weird thing, you know?
1: Same model? It wasn't a revised version of it? Exact or? same
0: model. Wow. Okay. In fact, Walter Beach would pull it off the line. This plane was designated for somebody else. Mm. So he just pulls this stock plane off the line, gives it to these women, and he has another plane for whoever would buy this one.
1: So so the plane itself was actually sound. It was Dewey's he just flying in bad weather that really killed him. It wasn't the plane... In in the design being flawed in any way.
0: Correct. You're flying into a snowstorm into a mountain. Okay. You know, there, and again, to your point, aviation being different, they don't have the navigational aids back then. So all you could say is, oh, it's snowing. You better not fly. At $14,000, this uh, Beechcraft C-17R was relatively expensive for its time. Walter Beach's wife, Olive, convinced her husband it would be very good publicity to have his plane win this Bendix race, especially with two women pilots. So it was almost kind of a black humor attempt saying that, hey, if two women can win this race, any man can win this race. Or if these two women can win a race in this plane, any man should have no problems flying it. So it was kind of a publicity angle for the beaches. It would help advance their aircraft sales. At and least a, that's a, their thinking in their head.
1: And another way to demean women.
0: And another way to another yet another way to demean women. So they asked their friend Louise Thaden if she would consider flying a beachcraft and she agreed. So now Luis and Blanche have an airplane. They would remove the handcrafted back seat and install an extra 56-gallon gas tank. And despite the extensive preparations, a day before takeoff, they were stunned to discover they were there even without a compass. They would call upon friends to work all night to remove their compass and install it in Blanche's and Luis's airplane. So it was a rough start to the race, and it was probably the slowest start to any of the Bendix race with the competitors fighting, driving rains, the haze of the heat, the blowing sands, the high headwinds, and extreme turbulence. Blanche was heard to say, the only time I really knew where I was at was at Circleville, Ohio. In fact, as the race would wear on, the pair would begin to have doubts they would reach the finish line in the allotted time. Yeah,
1: this sounds like a really tough race.
0: Yes, it sure was. So this race is going to go from Cleveland out to California. And as they're flying west, and with the blinding glare in the late afternoon sun combined with the smoke from nearby forest fires, it sounds like a mm. heck of a race, mm. plus the normal L.A. haze, they found forward navigation almost impossible.
1: Well, did they know about the uh, trade winds at this time? Didn't uh, they, did one else play a, a factor in this?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. You know, And a lot of times there was... It was simply word of mouth. Yeah. It was, Hey, I heard about these trade winds. And so there was a lot of kind of just homespun remedies to the navigational aids and how these people would fly.
1: So the reason I bring up the trade winds is because there's a theory about. Amelia Earhout's trip around when she went and tried to make her trip around the world and she got lost in the Pacific. There's a theory out there that she didn't know about the trade winds and actually was almost to Holland Island and turned around because she realized she wasn't going to have enough fuel. Because of the trade winds that she apparently didn't know about. So there's a theory that she actually turned around and she crashed somewhere else. And somebody's actually found a plane, New Guinea, somewhere near New Guinea or something. And there's a plane down there that matches very closely to her plane. So the theory was she didn't know about the trade winds and her her navigator, Navigator, Fred Noonan, didn't know about them either. I I don't know if this is true or not, but the theory was she was using too much gas because of the uh, then unknown trade winds. And she turned around and she crashed somewhere else.
0: Interesting. Now, I heard that uh, this Fred Noonan, her navigator, not to go too far off this, but he was considered among the best. Yes. So it would seem at least reasonable that he would have known about it. You think, right. You don't know. Right. And that's an interesting theory. Now, one of the other theories that I'd heard was that when she was flying, Amelia Earhart was flying on that day, the island that she was trying to land on was low and flat, and it looked like a shadow, and it was cloudy that day. So it would have been hard to distinguish what's a shadow and what's an island from the elevation mm. that they were flying at so that's that's another story and mm. I think that would be a good a good podcast too down the road but, so she would crash when she took off and part of that and she ground loop too so when she crashes that plane she was a horrible pilot.
1: yeah she was so right. when she
0: would crash it part of that crash plane is on display at the uh, huh. okay. at the museum downtown okay, okay cool. With the blinding glare of the late afternoon sun combined with the smoke from the nearby forest fires plus the normal L.A. haze, they, f- they found forward navigation impossible. They were forced to look behind them to see where they had been in order to determine their position. But they did it, and upon landing, they were stunned to discover that they had won. So when they flew over the airport, they thought that they had lost. They thought they were in last place. They didn't see any airplanes down there. In fact, they would go the opposite side of the airport to minimize the impact. They didn't want anybody to see them land because they thought they were last. They didn't see anybody, mm-hmm. and they were stunned to de- discover that they had what. Wow. So Blanche would tell Time magazine that she thought that they would be the cow's tail, but in fact the opposite would true. They mm-hmm. would win the race. Good for them. The duo defeated many good pilots of the day, including Benny Howard, Emil Earhart, and Joe Jacobson. Roscoe Turner would crash in the desert on the way to the race. He broke his neck there. Amelia Earhart would have a problem with her Lockheed electric canopy, and she held it on with a rag, costing her precious time. Benny and Maxine Howard would also throw a prop on their famous Mr. Mulligan and also crash almost fatally. So in in those two, Benny and Maxine Howard... Benny was a self-taught pilot, and he was expected to win the race. He Hmm. was really the heavily favored pilot, and his wife, Maxine, he had just gotten married. And Maxine wanted to go on this race, and Benny didn't want her to go. But she convinced him, hey, let me fly. Well, Benny had been flying for over 24 hours, and Maxine wanted to take the controls. And Maxine thought, well, okay, I'll I'll do it. I want to fly this plane. So Benny thought, okay, well, this can't hurt. Let me get a half hour's worth of rest told her, hey, keep the heading this way. And in short order, she, she had screwed it up. So she had somehow put the plane into a deep dive. And in the process of doing that, one of the propellers of the airplane uh, flew off. So now the engine is out of balance. And the engine, in essence, tore itself out of the airplane. So they're diving down. They're in a steep dive. And Benny Hauer is now awake. And unfortunately, the the fire extinguisher that they had mounted above their heads in the cockpit came loose, hits him on the back of the head, knocks him out. <laughs> so here he is, the experienced pilot. They're in a dive. And now they start to spin. She doesn't know what to do. I mean, they're in they're, they're big trouble. You're heading face down, spinning. And your, your best pilot is just knocked out. So he comes to at the last minute. And he can see what's happening. He pulls back on the stick. He's able to wrestle the airplane, get control of it. And they're just about to land. And he's flying toward a huge pile of rocks. Mm. So, in essence, to save his wife, he spins the airplane around so the impact takes it on his side. So, they smash into these rocks and it pushes the engine into the passenger compartment where it's now resting on their legs. So, you have this burning, scalding engine. And oh, by the way, the gas is leaking. So, the only thing they had with them between them was a bottle of whiskey. So they don't have any choice. They were pinned under this, this this glowing hot engine. So fortunately, somebody comes by. They scream to this 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 Indian kid. He doesn't know English, so he runs and gets somebody. They come back, and I think it was eight hours later. After all this wow. time, they discover that here are these two these two people were uh, were hurt in this this aircraft. So they get their friends. They come. They pull the engine off. They race them to the hospital. They both would recover. Benny would lose part of his foot, and Maxine would be crippled the rest of her life. Mm. But uh, it was an interesting crash, and it was all happened in the, in the process of this race. But we're off, we're off topic a little bit here. Starting at Floyd Bennett Field and landing at Los Angeles' Mines Field, the women set a new women's record for the transcontinental flight and won the race. They would gather in $4,500 for their first-place finish and also $2,500 for a woman finishing the race in a time of 14 hours and 55 minutes, stunning the aviation world.
1: Wow, so they beat everybody.
0: Yes, they sure did. It made the victory all the sweeter because this was the first year the race would be open to women, and they did it. So with the loss of Dewey, Blanche was unsure of what to do next. She had just won this race, and she had all this acclaim, And she was out on a pleasure flight when she would contemplate the increasing number of pilots who became lost and crashed. She realized a system of air markers would provide simple directions and distance to pilots so they could potentially save a lot of lives, the ones that got lost out when they were out flying. So she would seek the help of a group of women, including Phoebe Amelie and Louise Staden in a campaign to persuade the federal government to take up airmarking towns and cities. This would become her life's passion and her vocation. These yellow and black signs, they would paint with arrows, also with mileage, that would guide pilots to the next airport, and they were used by pilots for years to guide their flight. Blanche would find an ally in the Federal Bureau of Air Commerce in starting up a national program of airmarkers. The nation was divided up into 15 square mile segments, and the goal was to have an air marker in each of them. Although the Works Progress Administration program, the appropriations had run out, Blanche was tireless, drumming up support in small towns and villages all over the country.
1: Wow, what a great idea.
0: Yeah, it sure was, and she would frequently use her own money and resources to paint these roofs, and she would often do it by herself. Wherever she flew... Uh, She would appear at a banquet, a forum, or a lecture, and she would never lose an opportunity to help promote this program. She succeeded so well that when World War II reached America in 1941, the War Department became concerned that so many markers could potentially aid enemy pilots who might invade our borders. So within a few months, 2,000 air markers located within 150 miles of the Atlantic or the Pacific coasts were either covered or painted over, and Blanche had to do that as well. Wow, so she
1: did a lot of this herself, and then she just had to go back and redo it again.
0: Undo it and then redo it. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, she was motivated. Yeah, I'll say. But the day that the war ended, Blanche and the other 99s were back, hard at work, getting the old markers back up and new ones painted. By the time Blanche retired as the chief of air markers for the FAA, 75,000 communities had been identified for pilots. Wow, so her
1: her efforts saved a lot of lives, and I'm just curious, are any of these markers still around? Are any exist still to this day?
0: There are, they still exist to this day, not as prevalent as 75,000, but there are still a lot out there.
1: So are they being preserved at all?
0: Um, I think some are being preserved. Obviously, they're not needed as much as right. they were previously. But, yes, there are a handful out there that are, that are being preserved. And what a cool legacy.
1: Yeah, that's the historical significance. You know.
0: Definitely. And her, her efforts really saved a lot of lives. And not only was she involved in this, but she then turned her efforts to journalism to help promote uh, aviation that way, too. So among the awards that she would win, um, she was the first woman to receive a gold medal from the Commerce Department, and she was also inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame. Um, And that's really where her life would take her next. She was really turned to journalism and write a lot of articles um, about aviation, about women in aviation. She was called the most decorated woman pilot of all time, and Blanche Noyes would go on to win many awards, trophies, and prizes in her 45 years of aviation. There was not enough room to house them all in her Washington, D.C. apartment. So she had a storage facility where she really contained all of these awards. Mm -hmm. And Blanche Noyes would go on to pass away in October of 1981. What
1: a story. But I I got a couple questions for you. Yep. Okay. Was there something about a missing trophy?
0: Yes. So there's two stories about a missing, missing trophy. So if we go back to the 1929 Women's Air Derby. Okay. This is the one where she had the fire in the airplane and she would go on to win fourth place. They gave a trophy to Louise Thaden who won the race. Now, if you remember, Marvell Croissant, the woman who got killed in the race early on, and they were considering stopping the race because of that. Now, Louise Thaden made a promise to Marvell Croissant's family, and she said, If I win the race, I'll give you and the family your trophy. So, when she did win the race, they're giving her the trophy. Louise Thaden made it a point to put Marvell Crosson's name on the trophy. Now, this is one of those trophies that they're going to transfer every year. You don't get to keep it. You'll get your name on a little plaque, but you don't get to keep the trophy itself. So they gave her the trophy. So they gave Louise Thaden the trophy with Marvell Crosson's name. Nobody knows what happened to that trophy. So they think that Marvell Crosson had a brother who was a Bush pilot in Alaska. So they think maybe it went to Alaska. And then they think, well, maybe it got melted down during the war effort. Nobody knows what happened. So it's become kind of a holy grail for, for aviation enthusiasts as to where this, where this trophy landed. Nobody knows.
1: Just as a sideline, this is the second missing trophy in Ohio, Ohio's history. Uh- any of our listeners should go back and listen to uh, Paula and and Steve's episode on on the missing NFL trophy. Well, I don't know if they had the NFL then, but there was a championship trophy in the in pro football that ended up missing. Is it really? I think the first trophy ever. I think it's the first trophy ever awarded to a pro football team. The championship trophy is missing. Huh. 1920, I think it was. It might have been the first year of the NFL. So I know Paul and Steve did an episode on it. It was one of their first, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. Just go back to their, their start of their, their episodes. And so anyway, that's like the second missing trophy in Ohio.
0: Well, there's another story of another trophy related to this one. Okay. Okay. So in the course of researching the story, maybe 12 years ago, um, I'm really digging into Blanche noise's, uh, life and she didn't have any kids. So her husband, Dewey, passed away, and she would pass away in 1981 in Washington, D.C. She had an apartment. She had the only relative that I could track down was a niece. So I'm in communication with an email over this niece just about Blanche Noyes, and I was explaining to this niece, and her niece was, the niece was gracious enough to give me some some information and talk a little bit about her life, which was really cool. Yeah. So I explained that uh, just about there's an aviation museum here in Cleveland, Ohio. It's devoted to women. It's the Women's Air and Space Museum, and that if she had anything that she wanted to donate to this museum, that would be a certainly a worthwhile endeavor that this is a good museum and they would love to have anything that she might be able to donate or even lend or borrow. So, okay. So she said, well, I do have the trophy. And I said, well, what trophy? And she said, well, it's the Bendix Trophy that Luis and Blanche won. And I said, you have the trophy? Wow. She said, it's, it's been in the closet for years. Oh, my gosh. And these trophies are priceless. Yeah. There was one on eBay that I think that went over for $100,000.
1: Wow. So
0: she has no idea that this trophy is sitting in your closet in Baltimore, Maryland that blanche noises a niece has this trophy i don't i really kind of don't have didn't maintain communication with her so i hope that it's okay or she donated it to the museum but just kind of another uh, interesting legacy to this story
1: wow he, we, she, you should probably uh get in, go back in touch with her and see if you can find out what happened there that's yeah, amazing
0: yeah definitely but uh What a story. What a fantastic aviation, brave pilot from Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. And that's the story of Blanche Noyes. What a
1: great story. Great job.
0: Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's our story for this uh, week. And stay tuned for more. See you next week. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more like it, head over to OhioMysteries.com. With over 500 podcasts to choose from, there's sure to be one that's going to keep you captivated. I'm Dan, and I can be found at YouTube at North Coast History and Haunts. My partner, Mike, can be found at Facebook at Too Late for Autographs.